Well, good morning. My name is Jay Harvey. As Twombo said, I am an assistant professor and executive director at Reformed Theological Seminary. We have been in New York City since 2015, and uh, Central Church has been uh, important to us and uh, had great affection for Central Church for, for many years. I had the privilege of attending college with your pastor's brother uh, for small donations. I'll give you stories about that. Um, and uh, appreciate the ministry of this church very much as a family, uh, not just as an institution. We are blessed to have your staff as our students, not only in New York, but also uh, elsewhere at Reformed Theological Seminary. And lastly, we're grateful that uh, Central will host our classes this fall. And so uh, I, want to I want to thank you on behalf of our board, our administration, and our students uh, for your generosity in ministry in the city and especially to our congregation. Our passage this morning is from the letter from James, the first chapter, and I'm going to read verses 19 to 27, which are printed in your worship program. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Our Father and our God, we have heard your word. We pray, blessed Holy Spirit, for your ministry of illumination and understanding upon it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I want to begin with a question this morning, and that question is, what do you find most remarkable about Jesus? Now, asking that question, like all questions, uh, there's an assumption, a premise within the question, and that is that you have some general knowledge of who Jesus is and that you do find him remarkable. Now, I've been a pastor for many years, and I think this is a reasonably valid assumption. I mean, sometimes you meet someone who has no impression of Jesus, but in all the years I've been a pastor, I think it's fair to say that I have never heard any, I've never met anyone who had a bad impression of Jesus himself. I've never met anyone who said that Jesus was mean, that Jesus was utterly offensive. I'm not saying this person doesn't exist. I'm, I'm sure they do, and you may come and greet me if you're that person today, and I welcome you to do that. But 
it's fairly typical for people to have a, a very positive impression of Jesus, but it's also typical for people to have quite a negative impression of Jesus' followers or Christians. So there's this gap. And there's particularly a gap, more generally it's a gap stated between the way that Jesus lives his life and the way his followers live their lives. We might say there's also a gap, you'll hear sometimes, people speaking about Christians don't seem to be as nice as they should be. They don't seem to be as kind, and their words especially don't seem to be what they should be if they're following after Jesus. And those of us who are Christians tend to say, mea culpa at this. Yes. It is true that there is a gap between Jesus and his followers. And when I speak with somebody who raises this very valid question, why is there such a gap between Jesus and his followers? I don't seek to do what one could do. One could point to, over the past millennia, the wonderful things that many Christ followers have done. And there are many, the founding of hospitals and orphanages and other great humanitarian efforts, the establishment of um, various aspects of uh, civil society that seem to deliver justice better than other systems and so on. These have Christian foundations. That's one approach. But the problem is, if someone has been hurt or wounded personally, then that type of approach often doesn't land home. Because their personal pain is not dissuaded by all the great acts of history. I find it a better approach to actually go to Jesus himself and say, you know what? There is a gap between Jesus and his followers. Jesus predicts it'll be so. He explains why it is, and he explains how to close it. And most of all, he explains for you how he can heal the wounds that you feel you have suffered from yourself. There is this gap between the Christian and Jesus. And this morning, I want to consider um, an aspect of this gap, what I'm calling the perennial challenge. Now, the word perennial means lasting through the year, which since we count time mainly on an annual basis, that means it's an infinite, <laughs> because after one year it comes, you have another year. So this is a challenge that is everlasting for those who consider themselves followers of Christ. And the challenges are hasty, angry words. Are hasty, angry words. It seems especially appropriate for me as we move out of the summer in New York City, which is a more relaxed time compared to the rest of the year and move into a very busy fall. I think about the ways in which I'll be in situations where it'll be tempting to not listen, to speak in haste, perhaps even to speak with anger. So as we consider this, I want us to consider uh, something about the nature of our words and language, and then three particular points. But the first thing that we should understand is something about speech itself, and that is that God intends our speech not only to be expressive, but also to be formative. By expressive, I mean it is true that God intends our speech to convey what is within us, to others. It's part of being made in his image. For the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God 
except the Spirit of God. God reveals himself to us through his Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is a revelation of the mind of God. It it is speech that is expressive, and there is a dimension which our speech, too, is intended to be expressive. But our speech is not only expressive, and neither is God's speech. Our speech is also intended to be formative. There's a formative aspect of our speech. What I mean by that is that the words that come out of our mouths are not neutral, but they're full of power. And this, too, is one of the ways that we image God. Of course, we can't speak things into being the way God can. We can't speak and raise someone from the dead the way God can. But we can speak life or death into a person's life and make their day or destroy them, can't we? This is what I mean by formative, powerful speech. And this, too, is spoken about in Scripture very clearly. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, wanting them to be a healthier community or society. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So you hear this formative aspect of words that literally build, as opposed to words that corrupt or tear down. Now, we live in a particular moment in our culture where we very much emphasize the expressive when it comes to our speech, but we tend to neglect the formative. And this is not accidental. This has been an object of study. So one sociologist, Philip Reef of the University of Pennsylvania, the last century, said that the 20th century saw two great reversals in the West. And he frames these reversals around the role of a therapist. Now for Reef, looking at the whole of Western history, he's not thinking as narrowly about therapists as we would think about therapists. By the way, grateful for any therapists who were here. I benefit from you and so do my friends, so we're grateful for any therapists who were here. Reef isn't speaking about therapists quite the way we would. A therapist for him, he looks back over the history of, of, of the West, and he thinks of the person who mediated between an individual and society. So in the medieval world, that person would be a priest. In the Protestant Reformation, that person would be a pastor. And Reese says that traditionally, the role of the therapist was to help bring you into line with the world around you, with the institutions around you, with your family, your school, your church, your country, your king, your government. The role of this mediating person, God himself, was to bring you into alignment with the people and institutions outside of you to create a stable society. But in 20th century, we saw a culmination, according to Reef, of a reversal where the role of the therapist became not to help you conform to the people and institutions around you, but rather to actually protect you from the harmful neuroses that society itself creates through its smothering of the individual's ability to be herself. 
So rather than helping you conform, the therapist's role is now to protect you from those on the outside. No, we can pause and say there's something good about this, right? What we see here is a polarity, shifting of back and forth between the expressive and the formative. But the point is we live in a moment where we're especially emphasizing the expressive. And there is a a second uh, reversal that goes along with this first, and that is the commitment of the person is first and foremost to the self rather than to others, institutions, and society. First and foremost to the self. In other words, I'm most committed to expressing what I think so that I can become who I should be. And I need people around me to affirm that and to help me not be harmed by those who don't want me to be what I should be. There are gaps in any description of society that are so sweeping as reefs. But it seems these two reversals do capture something that resonates at least with me. I don't know about you. And as we said, that something is that we tend to emphasize the expressive when it comes to our speech and downplay the formative. And this can cause great harm. Because in so doing, we neglect one of God's great purposes for our words. And in so neglecting, on the one hand, we fail to build up, and then tragically, we can tear others down in a moment. It is possible for a parent to undo decades of sacrificial love in five minutes of hot anger. Isn't it? It is possible for a marriage to suffer a setback of a whole season of bliss in several sentences spoken in anger. It's possible for a community group or a church fellowship to be harmed with just a few careless words. It's also possible, we should say, thankfully, for great restoration and forgiveness in each of those cases. But the point is this. When we lose sight of the formative nature of our words, great harm can come on the one hand and great loss of opportunity to bless others on the other. So that's something we should understand about our words. They're not only to be expressive, they're also to be formative. Now three points I want us to consider about our words and our speech are purpose, power, and process. If our words are to be formative, what is their purpose? Well, James says here, negatively, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our words are designed by God to be powerful, and they are designed to produce a society that is right. Now, I don't mean society in a political sense. I just mean society in the sense of where people are gathered together, social the society of your community group at your church, the society of your office culture, I guess we should say now your Zoom meeting culture, your family, your school, wherever you are, wherever people are, God's great purpose for 
speech is to produce a society characterized by righteousness. And righteousness is a society where people relate rightly to one another. Society of peace, wholeness, fairness, kindness, justice, love. The great British preacher of the last century, John Stott, wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and he called it God's new society, speaking of the church, which Ephesians is about. James says at the end of this passage, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. There you see it again. The connection here between this and our speech is God's larger connection to produce people who create society wherever they are, that is right. Whether it be the formative words that come from our mouths or the way that we care for those who are neglected and suffering and have a special place in the heart of God and he wants them to have a special place in our heart as well. And when he says this, to keep oneself unstained from the world, that's a rich phrase, but at a minimum it would mean not adopting the standpoint and perspective of power, dominion, and self-servedness that is characteristic of the world system. Resist that. God's purpose is that we would be righteous, that we would be formative in our speech and formative in our care to bring about his righteous purposes in the communities where we are. That's his purpose. Well, the problem is, as the opening quotation, meditation, in your bulletin points out, we can't do this. No one can tame the tongue, James will say in chapter 3 of this same letter. We have a deeply rooted tendency to build society that serves our own interests, not the interest of Jesus. Or to use more biblical and theological language, we have a tendency to build our own kingdoms. They are right-side-up kingdoms, not upside-down kingdoms, with us in the center of them. We lack power to do this on our own. I watched a documentary. I tried to find it, and I apologize for not having the reference for it, but perhaps you saw it as well. It wasn't a documentary. It was one of these little television segments around the Olympics. And... The, the, the person was uh, speaking about whether or not it would be possible for anybody to run the 100 meters uh, under nine seconds, if you could ever break the nine-second barrier. Some of you are thinking, I run 100 meters under 13 seconds, or even just finish the race, I've done well. But is it possible to break the nine-second barrier for, for the 100-meter dash? And there's a lab that studies these things, studies runners, studies the very best runners in the world, and the interview with the director of the lab said this is physiologically not possible. Why? Because the human body is not designed to generate enough force to propel itself that fast. And they went through a rather complicated explanation of why this was physiologically not possible. There's not enough force 
And within ourselves, we don't have enough force either to deal with our own speech. And these calls to action, these instructions from James, are so, from James are so strong that the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, called James, the letter of James, a right, strawy epistle. He wasn't saying that he thought it should be removed from the Bible. What he was saying actually refers to 1 Corinthians 3.12, where the Apostle Paul speaks about the work of the gospel minister and building a foundation, and he speaks about foundations made with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and the last and weakest is straw. And Paul will go on to say, if you build anything on straw, it's going to be burned up in fire. It won't last. What Luther was saying here, there isn't something in this letter that we can build upon. Well, here I think Luther is wrong. He's wrong. James does emphasize the practical instruction. He doesn't dwell at length on God's power to change us, but he certainly is very clear about it on two occasions right up the front with very clear and powerful language. First of all, if you look at the passage, there is actually right before this passage a statement that it is God who brought us forth by the word of truth. It's in 118 that we would be a, a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. Right in the beginning of this letter, James is anchoring us in this perspective that when it comes to power, the power is actually within you, but it is not of you. It is within you, but it's not of you. It is the power of God's own Holy Spirit who has granted you new life in Jesus Christ, who has planted his own word in your life with a dynamic relationship between his word and his spirit, and your spirit now made new and alive and a resonance with his word within you and his word as you read it outside of you and you hear it taught to you. There's this dynamic relationship of power, and it's all not from you or from me, but from God. It is all of his grace. And as this passage unfolds in James in 121, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. It's literally a call to pause to pause and return to Christ who saved you, to the power of God within you, to consider your new purpose as a new creation within him. That's what James is saying. You can't put off without returning simultaneously to the word implanted within you. 
And this language of first fruits is powerful language. First fruits occurs in two ways in the New Testament. Now, for us living in New York, we enjoy fruit, but few of us will take the time to go and pick it ourselves. Uh, we enjoy a fruit of a harvest delivered to us. But in the world of Scripture, the first fruits refer to the first things of the harvest, which is the, uh, the, the foretelling or the indication there'll be an abundant harvest to come. And so Jesus is described as the first fruits raised from the dead, those who have fallen asleep, referring to his resurrection. Jesus is the one who has the power and has conquered sin and death and grants new life. And it is this very power of Jesus that God brings home to us to make us into a different kind of first fruits. First fruits in terms of the best fruits. The first fruits of the harvest are often the best fruits of the harvest. The ones least disturbed by environment and bugs and so on. And James says that we are a kind of first fruits of God's creation. In Revelation, you read this statement about the people of God. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And there is in their mouth no lie, for they are blameless. A statement about our words. See, Jesus is the first fruits, the one who conquers sin and death so that we can be the best fruits of humanity. Those whom God delivers sets us free from our passions and our desires and continues to make us more and more like Jesus that we can be the exemplars of righteousness for God's new society that he's building. So the power is within us, but it is not from us. It is Christ himself. And lastly, consider the process. There is a process. We're not one and done delivered. There is a gap, and a gap that will remain until we die and go and be with Jesus in heaven or until he comes and raises us all in perfection. There'll be a gap between our speech and Jesus' own way of life. And the first aspect of growing in this area is to realize the possibility of deception. James Warren says, do not be deceived. We should be expectant even to fall short in this particular area. We should be circumspect, but we don't do this with fear. Why? Again, we do this with confidence because it is God himself who has made Jesus the first fruits and source of power for us in his grace. So we don't fear introspection. We don't become defensive. We don't have a higher view of ourselves than we ought to because we're safe in Jesus Christ. And as we dwell safely in Jesus, we're exhorted to look upon the Word of God differently. To see God's Word not as something that keeps us from becoming 
who we're really meant to be, but as something that enables us to become all that we ever could be. One of the problems with being so concerned about express, being expressive is it tends to lead us to forget that we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. We can deceive ourselves, and often do. We can disappoint ourselves. We can even harm ourselves. It's a much safer thing to look to Jesus Christ and ask him to tell us about ourselves. Ask him to reveal who we really are. And to look upon his word and his law, not as something that restricts us, but as a pathway for our own flourishing, because he knows us better than we know ourselves. As we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is the only one who has ever had perfect speech. He's the only one who never spoke a careless word. He's the only one who never responded inappropriately. In fact, he was so focused on God's purpose for his life and his mission that even when he would have been justified, he withheld words. Thinking about Jesus' crucifixion, Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why? Because Jesus came for righteousness. To make right what we can make right ourselves and to begin first and foremost by making us right with God. He who was perfect and sinless, who knew no sin, became sin, was made like sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. We often forget our higher formative purpose for our words. But thanks be to God and to Jesus Christ that he never did, he never does, and he will never leave us or forsake us as he carries us along the way. Our Father and our God, we thank you for such a great salvation as we have in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for not only being an example, but being a powerful Savior and Deliverer. And Holy Spirit, we bless you for bringing the saving power of Jesus into our very own hearts. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.